Every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day. And every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned. And another five are abducted. So reports the 2021 World Watch List, the latest annual accounting from Open Doors of the top 50 countries where Christians are the most persecuted for simply following Jesus. That's their crime, following Jesus. David Curry, president of Open Doors, says, you might think the list is all about oppression, but the list is really about resilience. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The listed nations contain 309 million Christians living in places with very high or extreme levels of persecution, up from 260 million in last year's list. 50 million, almost 50 million people, 50 million more people are being persecuted this year, and the year's not even over yet compared to last year. This year, the top 10 worst persecutors are relatively unchanged. North Korea is number one. Afghan, Afghanistan is number two, followed by Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, which is on the eastern side of Africa bordering the Red Sea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. Those are your top 10. China joined the top 20 for the first time in a decade due to the ongoing and increasing surveillance and censorship of Christians and other religious minorities. The purpose of the annual World Watch list and its rankings is to guide prayers and to aim for more effective anger while showing persecuted believers that they're not forgotten. That's the reason why they do the list. So we're mindful of those who are being persecuted for simply following Jesus, many whom still believe he's alive. What do we mean by persecution? How do we define persecution? One definition is hostility or ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. Another definition is persistent annoyance or harassment. To harass or punish in a manner designed to injure or grieve or to afflict because of their belief, whether it be political or religious. To annoy with persistent or urgent approaches, attacks, pleas, to pester, to hound, afflict, torture, torment, badger, bother, persecution. Uh, the United States of America certainly does not make 
the top 50 in terms of persecution. We don't experience persecution in this country like they do in, let's say, India or Afghanistan or China or North Korea. But as we look at our nation today, are we becoming higher up on that list or are we going further back on that list? It's a legitimate question to raise. What would, should we do as Christians if we were to ever face persecution in our land? What should we do? What will God do? These are questions that can be answered somewhat in the passage we're going to be reading this morning in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. The question I want to raise and the question that the text raises is this. What will happen, what happens when God's people, the church, faces persecution by those in positions of power and authority? That's what the passage is going to address. And there are truths that we need to know and to live by. What will happen when God's people face persecution by those in positions of power and authority? Number one, when God's people face persecution by those in positions of power and authority, it will often be because of the success God's people are having in carrying out God's mission in the world. Verses 12 to 16. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. If you were here last week, we left with the apostles, Peter and John specifically, went to the church and they said, hey, they're telling us we can't speak in Jesus' name anymore. So what are we to do? And they prayed to God and they prayed for boldness. And they also prayed that after they, the, the apostles prayed, spoke boldly, they were praying that God would confirm their message when he would if he extended his hand by healing and doing miracles. That's what they were praying for. Now we're going to see an answer to that prayer. So through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. All of the apostles are unified as they preach in the temple, yet none of the rest dare join them, but the people esteem them highly. The question is here in verse 13 is, who is the rest? Who's not willing to join them? It's confusing, but it's most likely going to be the other Christians who are not, they're afraid to go into the temple while the apostles are preaching because they don't want to get in trouble because there's a law that's out there that says you shouldn't be preaching Jesus because the Sanhedrin, those who had positions of power and authority, were telling them not to do so. But the apostles will do so. And so none of the rest of the Christians, the Jewish Christians, dare join the apostles as they preach. But the people, the unconverted Jews who were worshiping in the temple, esteemed the apostles highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, which is significant in a patriarchal culture, a patriarchal society, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on the beds and on the couches, that at, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. 
also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. What's happening? The apostles are preaching. They're being obedient to what God wants them to do. And God is healing. He's confirming their message. Or, and, he's also drawing people to the message when they preach. And it's making an impact on the community around them. Not only is it impacting Jerusalem, but it's impacting the communities around Jerusalem. So much so that people are bringing sick people, hoping that the prayer of Peter will just be seen or somehow affect or uh, overshadow those who are sick and they'll be healed. What this is saying is that they were being successful in ministry. And when God's people are going to be persecuted by those who hold positions of power and authority, oftentimes the impetus of that will be success in ministry, as you see here. Their ministry and their success is starting to go out, and people are being drawn in, and God is working. So we see in this particular passage that persecution, when God's people begin to be persecuted, oftentimes it's because of the success of ministry that God is working among his people. Now, I want to go back and touch on this section, this underlying section. What is going on here with the shadow of Peter? What's going on here? The cultural context. It was believed that supernatural forces could be transferred among objects or persons at that time. This is... uh, It was called either manna or sympathetic influence. Technical terms, but that's what they call it. This is the conveying of the power of cure through the medium of a piece of clothing or even a shadow from the healer. Now, why would they think that? Why would people think that a shadow would bring about cure? The shadow was seen as an extension of the person or personality, perhaps even in some contexts, a manifestation of the soul or spiritual life force of a person. This understanding may have some bearing on how we should read Luke 135. This is a passage when the angel comes and tells Mary she's going to have a child. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit, by extension in their mind, is going to allow you to do something you couldn't do. And that's what was going on in, in, in their culture when they're hoping that Peter, his shadow, which is an extension of himself, would somehow affect them and bring healing. You say, well, did, did Luke, the author of this passage, really believe that's what's happening? Well, I want to say just in passing that God can use anyone or anything to bring healing. If he wants to use an inanimate object as a means to bring healing, he can do it. Acts 19, 11, and 12 says this, is, is evidence of this. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or sweat rags or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So here you're seeing actual objects that God is bringing about healing. You say, why would God work in that culture? This is Ephesus. Ephesus was saturated with occultic activity and the practice of magic. And so why would God work this way? 
in that kind of a culture. It's very simple. God wants to draw attention to his word. And so by healing in this way, he's speaking to the people in that culture in a way that they would understand and in a way that they knew that healing normally came about. So God wants to work in this way through whose clothing? The Apostle Paul's clothing. And who's preaching in Ephesus? The Apostle Paul. Like I said before, one of the reasons why God will work miracles and bring healing is to draw attention to his word. This is one way that God will bring a pagan culture to his word by working supernatural, unusual un, uh, miracles in this manner. People are going to see a miracle. They're going to be drawn to Peter or Paul, want to know what he's saying, and then they'll believe the message when they hear it. Well, that's the hope. That's the idea. So it's possible that God was doing something with Peter's shadow. We don't know. But the whole point that I'm trying to make is that when God's people experience persecution by those in power and authority, it will be because, oftentimes, of the success of the church. That's what starts all of this. Last week, it was opposition. But opposition intensified will bring about persecution. Number two, when God's people face persecution by those in positions of power and authority, those in authority will be powerless to stop God's people from carrying out their mission because they will receive divine assistance from the Lord. Verses 17 to 25. This is encouraging, and we should always remember this in times of persecution. Then the high priest rose up. Then the high priest rises up because of the success. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect or the, the, the school of thought or the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, they were jealous, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And this common prison was, in other words, this is, they put them in custody publicly. They're trying to make an example of these apostles. Now it's not just Peter and John like it was last week. Now it's all of the apostles. They put them in public custody so that everyone will know what they're doing. They don't want the public to believe the message. And they're saying, if you do what they're doing, you're going to get the same. So that's what happens here. But they're in prison. But what happens? At night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's what I'm telling you to do. What do you think they're going to do? <laughs> and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. The temple is closed at night. So when the temple opens up, they go. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. They were perplexed. And so one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. 
They're doing the very thing that the powers and authorities, the earthly ones, are trying to stop, and they can't do it. This tells me, and it tells all of us, including the church, that in, when God's people are persecuted by those in positions of power and authority, they will be powerless to keep God's people from carrying out their mission in this world. They won't be able to keep them. What's interesting about this whole thing? Well, we'll go to the third point. Number three, when God's people face persecution by those in positions of power and authority, those in power will often have a desire to harm and eliminate God's people. Verses 26 to 33. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. It is interesting. What do they do? They come without violence. They typically would come with violence. That's how the temple police, who were made up of Levites, headed by the chief, uh, the chief captain, who was the chief of police of the temple, when, you wanted this, when there was some kind of rioter, they would always come with a heavy hand. Always. The fact that they don't come with a heavy hand is why? Is because they feared the people. It is interesting that always those people who have power and authority are always keeping an eye on public sentiment. Always. We do that in our culture. There's polls. There's always polls. Want to gauge what public sentiment is like. And oftentimes those in positions of power and leadership will want to gauge public they want to know what the public is thinking, if it's going to be a policy that will be accepted or not. What we do today in terms of with public uh, figures, those in positions of power and leadership, they will always take into consideration public sentiment when they push policy, always. They do the same thing. Okay, That's what's going on here. They're always taking into consideration the public before they take a particular course of action. And they know that the people view the apostles highly. So they take them. And what's also interesting here, that when they take the apostles, there's no, they don't resist. There's never any mention when the apostles are disobedient to the, to the powers and authorities that are, that are trying to keep them from fulfilling their mission, they never resist with force. Did you notice that? It goes unmentioned. They just go. They just leave. They come with us, and they just go. They don't resist. They don't go kicking and screaming. You know why? Because they're trusting God throughout this whole process. And if God wants us to go to prison for his sake, then that's where we're going to go. And if he wants us out, he'll find a way for us to get out. Isn't that true? And so they just go. You know, they learn that because Jesus, when he was taken into custody with clubs, Jesus says, why are you coming with me with clubs? What have I ever said or done that would lead you to believe that I would be acting in a violent way? The disciple, and he rebuked his disciples when they started to do so. Tells Peter to put his sword back. Because Peter understood that this was an unjust action, taking Jesus into custody for doing nothing wrong, speaking truth. He said, Peter, put your sword back. They learned their lesson. So now they're just trusting God. They're going to take us. Let us go to prison. If that's where they want us to go. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. 
And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, Well, we ought to obey God rather than men. We, we saw the command of the angel not too long ago. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, when the, those in positions of power and authority heard this, they were furious, they were enraged and plotted to kill them. This tells us that when God's people are persecuted by those in positions of power and authority, those in positions of power and authority will seek to harm and eliminate God's people. That's what it tells us. This is not public knowledge yet. right? The disciples may know what may be coming because of their experience with Jesus, but the society at large have no idea that these leaders are plotting and would like to see these disciples dead. And that's what happens when God's people are persecuted. Fourthly, when God's people face persecution by those in positions of power and authority, it will provide an opportunity for God's people to suffer for the name of Jesus and honor which causes joy. Suffering and joy don't seem to go hand in hand, do they? But in times of persecution, that's exactly the lesson in this particular passage of Scripture, verses 34 to 41. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them, the apostles, to, be put, uh, to put the apostles outside for a little while so they could have a private conversation. And he, Gamaliel, said to them, men of Israel... Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, a man by the name of Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody important. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this work is of men, it will come to nothing, just like the other examples that I gave you. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they all agreed with them. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that Jesus should not speak they, they, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And so they, the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame or dishonor for the name of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? They are beaten, they suffer, and as a result of suffering, they rejoice that they were considered worthy to suffer for the one who called them. A 
Daryl Bach, an Old Testament scholar, a New Testament scholar, says this, the leaders beat the apostles to produce shame. This is an honor-shame culture. They want to shame them. They put them in prison publicly, make them feel bad, right? They hope, the leaders do, that the shame might function as a deterrent and to stop their preaching or at least persuade others not to heed them. In the apostles' view, however, being worthy to witness to the name of Jesus is a great honor and a cause of rejoicing. Their whole perspective in suffering for Jesus' sake brought great joy. Let me ask you this question. How much would you be willing to suffer for Jesus? How many times do you hear that at church? in a church service. If Jesus was standing here today, and it's not me, and he says to you, what would you be willing to suffer for me? I suffered for you. I was ridiculed. I was beaten. I was betrayed. Even by those closest to me, what would you be willing to suffer for Jesus? If we have the perspective of the apostles and we know that we're faithful to Jesus and that faithfulness may bring suffering, whatever, that, whatever form it may come in, if we know that we're suffering for his sake, we should have the same perspective and attitude as the disciples, the first apostles who were suffering and were beaten. They were scourged. And, and oftentimes, people would be killed because of the scourging. This was not a light beating. But suffering is very real. And the church may be called upon in the future here in this land to suffer for him. Would we be willing to suffer for him? If we know that we're suffering for a cause that is right and just and true, let it happen. And if it does, we should remember the first apostles who suffered too. And they looked at it as not as a disgrace or a dishonor, but as honorable. It is a noble thing to suffer for Jesus. It is noble to preach Jesus Christ crucified in a land that is trying to keep you from doing so and going to prison for it. That is noble the world will say, you should be ashamed of yourself. We are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of a different kingdom with different values and a different perspective, even on suffering. The church needs to hear this today. So, when the church of Jesus Christ and God's people are persecuted by those in positions of power and authority, it will provide an opportunity for God's people to suffer and to rejoice as a result because of the name of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. These are the words of Jesus. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. 
For so they persecuted the prophets, those who speak God's words to people who were before you. Persecution is not a new thing. It may be new in this land. I hope it doesn't come. But if it does, the church needs to be ready for it. And we need to be willing to suffer. A suffering church. It's one of the letters that the author wrote to the church uh, in Revelation. To the suffering church. He may call the church to suffer. And we need to realize that. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I hope it doesn't happen here. But God's word says it does happen. And other missionaries around the world will tell you that it is a reality. 13 people die every single day because of it. Fifthly, when God's people face persecution by those in positions of power and authority, the church, God's people, must continue to preach Jesus no matter the cost. Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every single house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, no matter what the cost was going to be. They had just been beaten, and they go right back to the mission. It's going to cost them something. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost me something. Are you willing to pay the cost? Are you willing to count the cost to be Jesus' follower? It's a sobering word today, but it is the word nonetheless. And he is speaking. His word is speaking. So no matter what happens... Whatever comes down the road for us as individual Christians, as the church as a whole, we must be faithful to the mission no matter the cost. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that we live in a world that's not our true home. You've called us out of the world to live in the midst of it as citizens of a different kingdom. Lord, may we be marked as such so that people who are of the world and who live in the world will see the truth about who you are and what you've done for them. Lord, we have a mission as the church of Jesus Christ, and that's to make Jesus known. And we ask, Lord, that Countryside Covenant Church here in Millbank, South Dakota, a small little tiny town that's in a state that's called by many as the flyover state. But this is a place where you could do great things. I'm mindful of the fact that you did a mighty thing with John the Baptist You did some marvelous things out in the wilderness, a place where people did not expect you to be working. People would expect you to be working in Jerusalem in the temple, but that's not where you were working, Lord. You were working out in the wilderness in a place unexpected by an unexpected person, by an unexpected group of people. May that be the case here at Countryside Covenant Church. May we be a church that is unified with a common goal and purpose. In spite of our differences, May we be unified in our common mission of making you known. 
And may you bless this church with resources, with gifted men and women, young people, older people, so that they may know you and we can know the joy of knowing you and working alongside of you as you guide us and lead us to do that what you have called us to do. Lord, we know that we're living in difficult days and they may get harder still. And you may cause us to suffer for your name's sake. If that is the case, give us the courage and the strength to do so in a way that is gentle and lowly, sheep in the midst of wolves, and by doing so, we show the whole world that this Christian movement is not dangerous to the public. It may be dangerous to those who are in power, but that's because those in power are trying to hold on to something they, not, they cannot last, they cannot have forever. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would bless our efforts here today. Bless our, our efforts in making you known to our community, building each, up, building each other up in the faith, drawing us closer to you. For we know that you are here in this place. You are alive. And may your spirit make that evident to those around us. And we'll give you the praise and the glory and the honor that is due you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand, if you are able, for our closing song, Facing a Task Unfinished.
I, the church, face a task that is unfinished. We, as a church, have a mission to go through all the world and to make Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, to make him known. And no matter what anyone says or does, no matter how, what position they may occupy, how much power one individual or group may have, no one and nothing can stop the mission of our Lord through his church. Not one. And we may have a difficult time. He may call us to suffering. But do not fear. He is with us and will give us the power to endure and to overcome. Because Christians are overcomers. Amen? May that be true. And may that be in your mind as you leave here this morning. We are overcomers. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Now go in peace. Amen.